Good morning. I want to invite you guys to uh, travel with me for a moment. I want you to imagine we're in the early part of the first century. You're a Jew living in Israel, but you don't live anywhere near the city of Jerusalem. And for you to travel that distance is quite an undertaking. And so you haven't been to the city before. But like any Jew living in that area at that time, you are going to find a day. You are going to find a time, probably during one of the major feasts. And you're going to travel to the city. And you're going to be at the temple And you're going to experience the joy of worship with the rest of the Jewish community at the temple in the manifest presence of God. And so you're traveling and as you you begin to come up the uh, temple mount, you can't take your eyes off the enormity of the temple. You, You see the wall that surrounds it. You see the buildings that are inside. You see all of the busyness. There are tens of thousands of people on their way into town right now because it is the time of Yom Kippur. It is the time of the Day of Atonement. And people are coming from all around the many regions so they can be there to worship together and watch as the priest goes into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the people's sins for the year. And you get there and you get to be a chance of, uh, you get a chance to be a part of that. And so you enter in through the first gate and you find yourself now in the court of the Gentiles. It's enormous. And there's thousands of people there. And, and it surrounds really all of the temple buildings. And there are just people milling around. And there's all kinds of people preaching over here. And other people talking over there. And people just sort of enjoying the atmosphere and getting excited. Because today's the day. It's the day of atonement. And, and you continue in. And the next court that you go into is called the court of the women. And, and it's the place where you're going to find... Jewish women all around, men and women, but they'll be all around, and this is the place where they have a big screen and they're showing Hallmark movies. <laughs> and you find yourself there, and, you, and you, you move in even further to what is called the court of the men, and, and the women cannot go past this place. And in the court of the men, that's where they've got sports and do-it-yourself stuff going on and all that. And... And it gets exciting as you move further in because now you've come to the place where you cannot pass because now you go into the actual building of the temple where the manifest presence of God is hovering over the Ark of the Covenant in a place called the Holy of Holies. And you enter and, and, and you see the priests going into what is called the court of the priests. It's a very small area and there are some priests who are in there who are doing their regular uh, daily duties at the temple. And you know that beyond that place lies a place called the holy place. And as, as the holy place is entered, you couldn't go there, but there is one priest on this day, Yom Kippur, who has been chosen And he has to be ceremonially pure. And he has to be of the right line of the priesthood. And he's chosen by God that year to go in. And he carries with him some incense and a bowl filled with blood. 
This is the blood of an animal that has been shed as a symbol of the need that we all have for forgiveness for our sins. This is the one day a year as a Jew when there's this ceremony about forgiving the sins of the whole nation for the year. And the high priest now goes in carrying the the bowl and the incense. And as he walks in, he's shaking in his boots because he knows that if he goes into the Holy of Holies and his heart's not right before God, he'll just be obliterated right in the presence of God. And so he has prayed and he has prepared and he is ready to go in. And as he goes in to the holy place, he sees in front of him a giant curtain. It's called the veil of the Holy of Holies. It is 60 feet high 30 feet wide and four inches thick. It's massive. And it separates the place where the priest can go and the place where the Shekinah, the glory of God, resides. And it's sort of a protection because no one can look upon God and live. And so now the priest, with his hands undoubtedly shaking, goes in to make atonement on behalf of the people, the blood sacrifice, the incense that are offered. He will represent the people to God. He will confess the sins of the nation. And if he lives, he will come out. When he comes out, he will go to a platform overlooking all of those courts and he will raise his hands and shout in praise to God. And the people will in unison break into cheers of praise because he has represented them to God and now he comes out to represent God to them. Forgiveness offered. It's an amazing, incredible picture. On that day of atonement, it's as if every year that goes by, they do this again and again and again, and every year, it's as if the priest goes in to make a payment, so to speak, for the sins of the people, but I like to think of it not as a payment like on a loan, but maybe like an interest-only payment, because nobody has enough to pay that price. And so they go each, each year and they make that interest-only payment and it has to be made again the next year and it has to be made again the next year and it has to be made again the next year. And one day, that veil, that massive structure, four inches thick, 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, one day that veil is torn in two from top to bottom. They said that that veil was so strong and so thick and so tightly woven that if you were to put two horses on this side and two horses on that side, connect them by rope to the veil and pull, you could not tear that veil. But now, without a human hand, the veil is ripped from top to bottom and torn asunder. Why? How? Take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 27. We're gonna look at this together. First book of your New Testament is the book of Matthew all the way to the back of the book. Go to chapter 27. And let's look at the tearing 
of this veil. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 45. We find Jesus hanging on the cross. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour, three hours of total darkness in the middle of the day. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and rocks were split. The tombs were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered into the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said, truly this was the Son of God. Jesus, the great high priest, didn't just go behind the veil, he obliterated the veil. Jesus, the great high priest, didn't just have a one opportunity to make a down payment on the debt that was owed for all of our sin. He paid for all of our sin when he died on the cross. And because of that, the veil that protects people from the presence of God is no longer needed because there is no need to be protected from the presence of God who cannot be in fellowship with sin. But instead, those of us who trust in Christ are made pure in Christ and there is no longer any need for the veil. Is God good? Oh. And, and he made a way for us that day to have access to God through his death and his resurrection. You see, before that day, there was a Jewish priesthood. And they, they went through various rituals again and again and again on behalf of the people, trying to remove that barrier between people and God. There was all kinds of sacrifices that were made, but understand this, it was an important symbol, those sacrifices, but it was just a symbol. I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 10. It's toward the back of your New Testament. As you get back toward 1 Peter, you'll find the big book of Hebrews. And I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 10, and let's look together at this verse. We're going to begin at the beginning of this chapter. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For the law... Since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's just a symbol. 
The, the blood of bulls, the blood of the lambs, the blood of the goats, all of these animals that were sacrificed, it's just a symbol of what is to come and what is to come came in Jesus. When Jesus died on that bloody cross, everything changed. He obliterated the sin stain from everyone who puts their trust in him as Lord and Savior. And God, who, who was always seen by them as far off, now becomes fully accessible to anyone who has faith in Christ. Jesus is our high priest. And because of his saving work on the cross, we now have access to the Father. There is no veil. There is no blockage. There is no stumbling block. There is nothing that stands between us and God if we're washed in the blood of the perfect Lamb of God. The work that he did, he did once and for all. And that's what Jesus was trying to explain to his disciples that night at the Last Supper. You, you know, when they gathered for the Seder meal and he broke the bread and gave them the bread and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And he poured out the wine and he said, drink this, this is my blood which will be shed for you and it will be a new covenant in my blood. Not like the old covenant. The old covenant depends upon me, it depends on my choices, my sacrifices, all that I can do. The new covenant has nothing to do with me, it has everything to do with Jesus and all that he can do. And so I can be made perfect in the new covenant and he's explaining this to his disciples as he's passing out the bread and the wine and he's inviting them to eat and to drink. But frankly, they have a confused look on their face because it doesn't make any sense to them. They still don't understand that he will become the perfect Passover lamb, that he will become the perfect sacrifice. He shed his blood to create a new covenant, a covenant not based on our goodness, but based on his a covenant not based on our faithfulness, but based on his. A covenant not based on our sacrifice, but based on his. A covenant not based on our merit, a covenant based on his merit. And that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, because the veil has been obliterated. And we, as children of God, as followers of Christ, as those who have put our faith in him and our trust in him, we have access to the Father through the sacrifice of his son who is our great and only needed high priest. So if you're a follower of Christ, that's why we gave you cups when you came in. We're gonna share today in that same celebration in which the disciples shared the night before he went to the cross. And we're going to take the bread and we're going to remember that he gave his body to pay the price for our sin so that the veil could be obliterated and we could have access to God. We're gonna remember that his blood, which is symbolized by this juice, was shed so that you and I could be made clean because the blood of bulls and goats can in no way do away with sin. But the blood of the perfect lamb, the lamb of God, washes whiter than snow. Wow, what a celebration, church. What an opportunity for us to worship him together in remembrance of what he has done. And that's why he said to his disciples that night, as often as you do this, remember me. The cups are very simple. One side has a little cracker. You can open that side and take the bread out and hold on to it for just a moment.
The other side, when we get to it, you'll just peel that back and you can drink the juice. But before we do that, I want us to take a moment preparing our hearts for this kind of worship. Perhaps even today as you come before the Lord as his worshiper to share in the Lord's Supper, uh, you're convicted of something in your life that is standing between you and God. Now's a good time to talk to him about that. Now is a good time to confess your sin. Now is a good time to invite him to actually exercise his lordship into every dark corner of your life. So I wanna give us just half a minute to bow our heads and silently pray where we are, preparing our hearts to share in the Lord's Supper. Lord, none of us apart from Christ is worthy. None of us has access to your presence apart from Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. But Lord, we we give you thanks and praise today because in Christ we have been made clean. In Christ we have been made whole. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did not hold back even your body and your blood, but you gave everything to give us access to the Father. Thank you that the veil is torn and nothing stands between us and God. We give you all praise, all thanks, and all glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And that beautiful celebration, the celebration of what our great high priest has done for us, it leads us perfectly into our passage in 1 Peter this week. Because the veil is still torn, hallelujah. The veil is still torn. And our access to God is secure in Christ. But there is still a role to be played by priests. And Peter talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 2. So I want you to turn to 1 Peter. If you're still in Hebrews, it's just just to your right. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to pick it up in verse 4. Let me read for you verses 4 and 5. 1 Peter 2. And coming to him, him being Jesus, coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There are still sacrifices to be made. There are still priests to make them. But now, because of the blood of Christ, 
we are the priests. And now, because of the blood of Christ, we are the sacrifice. You see, um, in Romans chapter 12, you're familiar with this. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read it to you real quick. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Listen to what it says. Paul says, therefore, because of all that God has done for you, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living, holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We have become the sacrifice. He calls us to present ourselves as a sacrifice, to lay ourselves on the altar before God, our very lives in his hands for his glory to be used to exalt him. That's what we're called to be, living sacrifices. Peter calls it a spiritual sacrifice. Later in Romans, Paul calls it your spiritual service of worship to be a living sacrifice. So, on the one hand, this is the mystery of the gospel, right? On the one hand, the grace of God is the most valuable thing there is, and it's free because of what Jesus did on the cross. The grace of God is free on the one hand. There's no way that I could afford to pay for it. There's nothing I could do to deserve it, so it is given to me by God's grace free of charge because of what he did on a cross. There's nothing I could do to make that happen, but he's already made it happen. But there's a sense, on the other hand, in which it does cost something. You see, I have to give up the lordship over my own life. To enter into that saving relationship with Jesus is not just to accept the fire insurance of his uh, saviorship that keeps me out of hell, but it is, to, it is to accept the leadership of his lordship that becomes the guiding force in my life. And so we become children of God when he is our Lord and he is our savior. And so on the one hand, the grace is free. I could never earn it. On the other hand, I have to give up control of my own life and let him be Lord. That means I belong to him. That means I live for him. And that means I represent him. Peter calls us living stones in the temple of God. Paul calls us living sacrifices laid on the altar of God. We are children of God. We are worshipers of God. We are servants of God. We are heirs of God. This is who we are if we're followers of Christ. And here Peter tells us that in addition to being all those things, we're also priests of God. First, he explains that not everybody is part of this living temple. Not everyone is a living sacrifice. Not everyone is a priest of God. And he does so by quoting from the book of Isaiah and the book of Psalms. Go back to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 where he quotes. And we're going to pick it up in verse 6. He says, for this is contained in scripture. And he quotes, behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. So for some, for those who come to him by faith, 
Jesus is the cornerstone upon which everything is built in our lives. But for those who refuse to believe, for those who refuse to submit to his lordship, for those who refuse to accept his free gift and his sacrifice on the cross, to transform them out of death into life, they will live and die in their rebellion and unbelief, he says. But not so for everyone. By his amazing grace, some of us have been given new life. And together we now live a life of great purpose. Pick it up in uh, verse 9 of 1 Peter 2. But you, believers, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. See, the Jews had always believed that God's favor upon them on a nation was based on their race. They are children of Abraham. They trace their lineage back to him. And because of that, God loves them. Because of that, God blesses them. Because of that, God is with them. And that was their belief. It was based on their race. It was based upon their nationality, the 12 tribes of Israel. They had to be able to trace themselves back to the 12 tribes of Israel and be one as a part of the nation of, of God. And then they would be accepted among God's people. They thought it was about their race. They thought it was about their nationality. They thought it was about the priesthood. There were priests who were making um, uh, offerings for them on a regular basis so that they could still be in the good standing with God. So they had to be in the right race. They had to be in the right nation. They had to have the right priesthood. To the Jew, everyone who didn't fit those categories is an outsider. And outside they should remain. But that had never ever been God's plan. We're going to take a little glance through our Old Testament. Go back to the beginning in the book of Genesis. And I want you to go to Genesis chapter 12, where we see the beginning of all of this, the calling of Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, I just want to read you, and and I, I wish I had time to teach on this more deeply, but for now, I just want to read you these first three verses of Genesis chapter 12 so we see what the calling is, what the promise is, what the covenant is that is made with Abraham. Verse one, and now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation And I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, and you can highlight this, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You see, the the Jews read that calling and they saw the beginning part that that I'm calling Abraham away from everyone. I am choosing Abraham to be um, be the, the head of this new race, this new nation, this new people who will be called the people of God. But they seem to stop reading in verse three where it says, and in you because of this blessing, Abram, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. 
That's the beginning of God's calling and the making of the nation of Israel. Now, go, go further into your Old Testament and find the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah, we're going to pick this up. And it's after Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and all that. Then you start coming to the big prophets. You're going to find the book of, of Isaiah. And I want you to go to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, beginning in verse 5. Listen to what it says. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it, the spirit of those who walk in it. Do you see he's establishing his credibility here? He has the right to say what he's going to say. He's the creator of all things. Without him, we don't have breath in our lungs. And therefore, he says, I speak, you listen, you obey. Verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you, he's speaking to the nation of Israel. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. He says, I have called you, I have made you a nation, I have appointed you so that you can bring light to those who are still in darkness. I have called you to be my beacon that draws those who are not a part of Israel even to me. And then skip over to verse, or chapter 49, still in Isaiah. Isaiah 49, beginning in verse three. And he speaks in, in much the same way here. Isaiah 49, 3. He said to me, and he's again speaking to Israel as a nation. He said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. And now, says the Lord who formed me, who is me? The nation of Israel. And now, says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob, that's Israel, back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. So Israel says, I am honored among the nations, and my God is my strength, and God has called me, and he's put a special calling on my life. What is that calling? Verse six. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It has always been God's plan for this chosen race, for this holy royal priesthood, for this holy nation. It had always been God's plan to use them to bring those who were outside into relationship with God. Their hope was to somehow um, not do that though. Their hope as a nation was to somehow build walls around themselves to keep themselves protected so they could be holy and righteous and good and have all of God's blessings and keep away from those evil people out there who are just gonna get us dirty. 
And they didn't want anything to do with being light to those who were in darkness. Their goal was to stay away from the darkness. And somehow they lost God's calling here. Their hope was to somehow stay untouched by the sinful lives of the Gentiles. But in order to do that, they set aside their calling to be priests. Now, what's a priest? What does a priest do? A priest becomes a bridge between God and man. So, so the, 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 the picture in my mind that helps with this is I see a priest as one who grabs the sinful hand of man and grabs the holy hand of God and brings them together. That's really the definition of a priest. A priest is one who represents the people to God and represents God to the people just as that high priest did on Yom Kippur before the, temple, before the veil in the temple was torn. That's what God called Israel to be, a priest. But they refused. So eventually God did away with the old covenant by fulfilling it in Christ He did away with the sacrificial system by sending Christ as the one true and perfect sacrifice. And that's what God called Israel to do is to do away with that old covenant and walk in this new covenant. He fulfilled it through the new covenant in the sacrifice of Christ. That's why Jesus said to his disciples, this is a new covenant in my blood. And through Christ, he reached beyond the Jews Through Christ, he grabbed the hand of those who were far from God. And by his sacrificial atonement, he brought them near. Listen to how Paul explains it in Acts chapter 13. I know I got you jumping around your Bibles. Go to Acts chapter 13, New Testament, fifth book. Acts chapter 13. Paul has just started his first missionary journey. He's going out from Antioch with this calling to bring the gospel to the nations. And his first stop, he he finds a Jewish synagogue and begins to preach there. And they're interested. And so they say, hey, come back and preach again tomorrow. And in Acts chapter 13, verse 44, pick it up here. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first since you repudiated and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. This is the beginning of a massive movement. This is the reason most of us could even be here today worshiping God. Because God finally carries out that thing he had always intended to do through Israel. And as Paul, by the way, a Jewish 
priest begins to stand and preach and do the job of a priest by reaching to the Gentiles in the darkness and bringing them hand to hand with God. Gentiles come, become followers of Jesus and this movement begins and if we had the ability to do so through some blood test or something, all of us could trace our spiritual lineage back to some of these Gentiles for the most part who were saved. Most of us are not of pure Jewish blood. Most of us are some sort of mix of Gentile blood, and we would have been considered outside of the commonwealth of God's people by the Jews. But God changed it all that day. And what does all this have to do with us and 1 Peter? Good question, because I'm all about out of time. So let me get to that. 1 Peter chapter 2, back to 1 Peter. Let's look again, starting in verse 9. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He's talking to us now. He's talking to followers of Jesus. He's talking about those whose sins have been washed away by the blood of the lamb. And he calls us a holy nation. He calls us a royal priesthood. He calls us a people for God's own possession. He calls us a chosen race. And the word race there just means people group. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mercy, behold, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Where Israel has failed as a royal priesthood, as a chosen race, as a holy nation, God has appointed the church to be those things. It's our job to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into this marvelous light. God looks upon his church with all of our diversity, so much diversity, racial diversity, generational diversity, um, socioeconomic diversity, political diversity, gender diversity, backgrounds that are diverse. God looks at his church, his people, and instead of highlighting all those things that make us different, he highlights that which makes us the same as Christians. Whatever else may separate us from one another into divisions, all of that is overshadowed by the thing that we have in common. We are the blood-bought children of God, a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and he wants to use us to bring the light of Christ to those who are still in darkness. We will not do that by keeping our light under a bushel. And we certainly will not do that by walling ourselves in for protection from those bad people out there, whoever they might be. And we will not do that by preaching one thing and living another in their midst. Again, verses 11 and 12, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, 
they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. He says, let them see how God changes lives. He's been talking to us about this transformation. He's been talking to us about new life in Christ. See, as we know, we've talked about this, it's very common in our society for people to use imperfect Christians as a reason for not going near our perfect God. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, and we don't have time to look it up. You can look it up uh, this week. It's in Matthew chapter five, verses 14 through 16, where Jesus says that, that we are to carry out good works in the name of Jesus so that the people who don't know Jesus will see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. He tells us to live differently because now we're a holy nation. Now we're a royal priesthood. Now we're a kingdom of priests. Now we're the people of God. Ours is the highest of callings, Christians. He has made us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Why? So that our behavior can be a stumbling block that keeps people away from God? No. So that those who are far from God may see our good works and be drawn to him, that we could act as priests, those who actually build relationships with people who don't know Jesus and build relationships with Jesus and bring those two together as they watch the transformation of our own lives. It's a high calling and it's only possible if we choose a life of surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. And by the way, this is not a calling to individuals. He calls us a nation. He calls us not priests, but a priesthood. He calls us not a person of God, but the people of God. This is something that involves all of us. There is a world out there made up of people that God desperately loves. And those people are hungry they are hungry for something that gives life meaning, something that gives life, life purpose, and they are looking under every rock and trying every possible thing to fill that emptiness in their lives. And it's easy for those of us who already walk with Christ to stand back and go, what a bunch of fools. Look at all the stuff they're chasing. There but for the grace of God go we. And for us to have that a heart of God that says he has put us here as priests to actually be a light in that darkness is an unbelievable thing. People are desperate to meet a chosen race of God's people. People are desperate to meet a royal priesthood who will, who will lay down their own lives to build a bridge to God for people and a holy nation who will shine a light the light of Christ that pierces through every darkness. Oh God, by your grace, make us just such a people. Let's stand and pray together. Lord, Lord we have been perhaps instructed, perhaps challenged by your word today. We've had a wonderful time of worship because you made a way, because the veil is torn in two. We've had incredible joy of access to you and that you would bend your ear to hear our praises and you would be pleased. 
We have access to you at all times and all places because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so God, I thank you. We thank you as your people for what you have done. But not just what you've done, but what you're doing. And so now, God, we confess that we are a chosen race. We confess that we are a royal priesthood. We confess that we are a holy nation. We confess that we are the children of God, the people of God. And so, as the people of God, send us out that we might be priests that bring people into relationship with you. Not because we're such amazing preachers, but because you're such an amazing God and you're changing our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.